Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Especially in this Christmas season, um, you know, we're surrounded by who Jesus is and why he came. We sing and we talk about hope and peace and righteousness and goodness, and goodwill toward all men, all of that. Uh, and we often are uh, weighed down by the fact that we don't do it and we don't do it well. And so the more truth we're exposed to, the more we're exposed to the things that we don't do. We come to church, we open Scripture, and Scripture tells us we should be doing this. And we don't always do that. It tells us we should not be doing these things, and we don't always listen to that. We don't always obey, and that becomes a weighty burden. And some of us are trapped under that burden. You're trapped under a burden of guilt and shame that even makes it difficult sometimes, maybe even awkward, to show up to church because you just don't want more things pointed out that you can't do and that you can't live into. Paul's encouragement is not to downplay the law, downplay Scripture. If you just read less of it, <laughs> the more you don't know, the less you know, condemnation you'll feel. No, no, he wants you to read more of it. He's writing more of it as he's writing to the Romans. He doesn't want you to shy away from truth. He wants you to understand that that person that couldn't live that truth that person that was unable to respond to God's truth, that person is dead if you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, not only uh, should you obey God's rules, obey God's laws, love God more, make him number one in your life, but you can do it. And so that famous passage right at the top of chapter 8, verse 1, that says there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ, it's specifically talking about the condemnation that comes when the sin that shows up in our lives comes knocking with the law. God said this, and you're not doing it. God said don't do that, and you're still not doing it. It's wielded by the accuser. Satan in Scripture is called the accuser, and he uses the law to accuse you. If there was no law, he'd have nothing to accuse you with. So the law is Satan's big billy stick to come around and beat you down and tell you you're no good, you can't do it, you're not good enough. And Paul's saying, yeah, you're by yourself not good enough. But when you listen to the accuser, you're downplaying something that God has done that's good enough. God has shown up in your life and broken into your life in a new way to put to death the person that was a slave to sin and make you alive in a way that you're no longer dominated by sin. If you're encouraged by this passage, encouraged by what it teaches, you'll leave here, uh, I hope, with a, a new energy in your step, in your walk with Christ, a new wind in your sails that is different than the typical uh, New Year's resolution Christianity. Okay, I failed 2021. Maybe, maybe it was COVID. 2022, here I come. Here I come. I'm going to do it. You'll fail again because the power that you draw from is not you. The new person is different from the old person and that the old person only had self to draw from. That's why that person always lost. A new person has something besides self. It's the Spirit of God that empowers you to walk with God in a way that pleases Him. Let's look at the first four verses, chapter 8. Because of this work that God has done, because of this transfer that He's done, because of this gift through Jesus Christ our Lord from chapter 7, verse 25, He opens up chapter 8 saying, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That weight, that burden that was true of the person who didn't have Jesus is taken away from you because of Jesus. It doesn't say there's now therefore no condemnation for those who perform perfectly. 
It's your position in Christ that removes the condemnation. That doesn't mean God doesn't care when you mess up. It just means that your, your performance each day, each week, does not put you in, you know, ticket to heaven, ticket to hell. Ticket to heaven, ticket to hell. And you're, No, no, no. No condemnation because it's not about your performance. It's about Christ's performance and your position in Christ. That's a powerful truth you need to grapple with. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This is a complicated maybe way of saying you were beaten down by the law, dominated by it, by sin, using the law, but now you have the spirit of life. You have the spirit of life. You live in victory. Verse 3, why? Well, because of Christmas, that's why. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The reason why Christmas is the answer is not because Jesus came and looked like flesh. When he says the likeness of flesh, uh, back in verse 4, he doesn't mean that Jesus looked human. He means he looked like the kind of human that struggles with sin like the rest of us. He actually was born in flesh, but in the likeness of it. But the difference was he didn't carry that stain of sin. He did not sin. And so he was able to step in and perform where we couldn't perform. It's, it's kind of like cheating. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like you're supposed to, you know, run the, the dash for your school and you can't and someone else wears your jersey, does it, and your name goes up on the wall at the school. I mean, you, you get the credit. And that's how God decided to do it. He decided someone else can step in and do it on your behalf, and it, that righteousness will be credited to you. That's what Christmas is about. Anyone asks you, take them to this verse. We're dominated by sin, using the law to constantly beat us down. Jesus came, perfectly fulfilled the requirements of the law, so that now we can escape that trap. Now, here's where some people go wrong. A lot of preachers sometimes, they... They'll preach Old Testament passages, let's say, and the Old Testament passage says, don't do this, don't do that, right? There's law. Or do this and do that. Start doing these things. They're the things that we need to do, uh, and they're the things that we need to stop doing, okay? It's kind of two sides to uh, what God reveals about his rules and what he wants from us. But when God reveals those things uh, throughout the Bible, here's what some preachers will do. They'll say, here's what the Bible tells us we can't do. Thank God Jesus came and fulfilled those things that we can't do. Isn't that amazing news? Amen, that's amazing news. Close the Bible, let's pray, go home. That's not good. Because you'll notice what he says here. Why did Jesus come? He didn't come just to fulfill the law so we could be safe. He fulfilled the law so we could be sanctified. And there's a difference. He says he was, uh, in verse 4, why did Christmas happen? Why the incarnation? Why did he live in uh, the likeness of human flesh. Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk it out now, who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. It is an incomplete gospel. 
an incomplete version of Christianity, an incomplete sermon. If we say, here's what the Bible says we can't do, oh shucks, we can't do it, wow, I feel guilty, that's appropriate, step one. Step two, Jesus came fulfill the law because we couldn't fulfill it. Wow, that's good news, that's great, but that's not the best part. The best part is Jesus fulfilled it, not so that you could sit back and relax and be like, well, Jesus took care of it. Jesus fulfilled it so that now you can walk in it, so that what before you could not do, now you can and should do. Jesus didn't just erase your stain of sin. He also put something for you, in front of you, and in you to live according to the law of God. And so you remember back in the last chapter, Paul struggled, like, I love God's law, but it's hard for me to do it. He doesn't say, I guess I should hate God's law. No, no, I love God's law. I delight in it, Psalm 1. I delight in it. I want to meditate on it. It's hard for me to do it. And what he's saying in chapter 8 is God has given a way for you to do it, not ignore it. And so rather than being scared of the law, rather than being condemned by the law, weighed down by the law, we're uplifted by it. It's the opposite effect because you can do it. You can live into it. So previously you were too weak to do things, and every time you saw there was another task, another duty, it just felt like more plates on the bar that you already can't bench press. And then kind of like, I don't know if you've seen the movie Unbreakable, he realizes little by little there is no weight he can't bench press. He's in the basement with his son, and the son just keeps adding weight, and he realizes, wait a minute, I have a superpower (laughs) And maybe it's slow going for you and you're slow to realize it, but Paul's saying what's true of you, if you've already been granted, not power to do a little more than you used to be able to do, couldn't do it at all before, now there's no limit. Whatever God says is true, whatever God's laws are revealed to you, that's not relegated to super Christians and the rest of us are just sort of dumbed down Christians. You are in Christ. In Christ's work, in his birth, death, resurrection and ascension is to empower you with no less power than he empowered Paul. You can do it. You can do it because you're not condemned. Some of us wonder, you know, is it that unbelievers can't do anything good? Sounds like it, but let's unpack it. Let's read verses 5 to 8. He says, for those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The two kinds of people here. Some have the Spirit, some don't. Verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So it sounds like he's saying those who don't have the Spirit of God, they can only do evil all the time. And that's where you scratch your head. You're like, I don't know. I don't know. Because this brother in my small group really ticked me off last week. And then when I went home, my neighbor did the opposite and blessed me that week. And my neighbor's an atheist. You see, we see this incongruity. We see Christians that do bad things sometimes. And we see people who hate God. Maybe they'll even say it but they're not constantly slashing your tires. The dude helped you change your tire. So what, what, what gives? Can unbelievers only do evil? Yes and no. 
Uh, this is where it's helpful. I think the reformers that try to tease this out for us because of their beef with the Catholic Church, they had to hammer some of these things out. So I'll break it down really simply. Calvin called the good that unbelievers can do a civil righteousness. And from the external experiences, they can help an old lady cross the street. They can give money to the poor. They can, you know, they can step in and take a bullet for somebody. That's not outside the realm of what an unbeliever can do, but they can never do it to the glory of God. What is the first law of all God's law? What's the first one on which all the rest of them hang? To love God with everything, right? Love God, and from loving God, we love neighbor. And so an unbeliever can't get past the first law because they can only do supposedly good things for love of self or love of community or love of something else that is not God. And therefore, they can externally look like they're keeping God's law, but that law, that's a, that's a civil law. That's, that's something we do because we, if, you know, if I help my neighbor, maybe they'll help me change my tire next time. There's always this quid pro quo in, in how unbelievers see it. But Paul talks about doing things according to God's law, and God's law starts right at the top with loving God, and we don't love God. We don't want to please God in our flesh. That's the point he's making here. It's not that they're constantly killing people and constantly pillaging. No, but it's that they cannot do these things with a delight in God's law. They cannot do these things in a way where they're wanting to please God and therefore they don't please God no matter what they do in verse 8. But you're not that person, verse 9. You are not that person. So here's the flow. I don't know if you make notes in your margin, if you're trying to help get your mind wrapped around Romans a little bit. Chapter 6 message is, you are no longer dominated by sin. Chapter 7 is, but I know we still struggle with it, right? Chapter 7, we still struggle with it though. Chapter 8, but you don't stay beat down in that struggle. You, that struggle is a victorious one. Chapter 8, because of the Holy Spirit, you have victory in that struggle. That's what chapter 8 is here for, to, to, to help you stay not dominated by sin. That means that... New Year's resolutions or daily resolutions or weekly resolutions, put it in the back of your planner, wherever you say, you know, I'm committed to the, I want to do these things, I want to see these changes in my life, you should do that. You should do that, but you don't do that in the flesh. You don't lean on seven steps. You know, you don't lean on a book that gives you tips on how to do it. You don't lean on fleshly ways of doing it, which is just another way of kind of muscling through okay, I didn't do it last time, but this time, I'm going to do it. It's leaning on the power of the Spirit to do it because the difference between the believer and the unbeliever is not that we're more resolved. It's not that we have a more stick-to-itness. We're, we're, we grind it out better. No, no, that's not the difference. I meet unbelievers all the time that are incredibly disciplined. They want to change their diet, they change their diet. They want to drop drinking, they drop drinking. You don't have to be a believer to drop certain things. Or adopt good habits. Unbelievers all the time. You know what? I'm going to start keeping a planner, and I'm going to have seven steps of effectiveness because I'm a highly effective person, and you don't need to believe in Jesus to be an effective person in the world. What he's saying is it's, a, it's different for the believer. We're not leaning on our own strength. So make your New Year's resolutions, but don't make them from a spirit of, I can do it. Make them from a spirit of, I know I can't do it, but I have the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God empowers me to do these things. These things are things God wants me to do. 
Scripture reveals them to me. These are the things that please God, and God has equipped me with what I need to do those things. And so we enter the new year not hoping that I can do it, but believing that the Spirit of God can do it through me. And that's a big difference. It's all the difference in the world. That's the difference between someone who continues to feel like they're struggling and losing in this battle and someone who actually has victory in their life. And family, our our kids need to see this. Our kids need to see dads that don't just come to church Sunday after Sunday and it's the same dad two years later, three years later, he's the same dad. Change. Moms, change. The things that you haven't been able to start doing, you can do that. And the things that you feel like you haven't been able to break, you can break it and it starts with faith. You'll notice Paul has nothing here about what you need to do. It's first thing in the morning, A, B, and C, before your breakfast. And now you'll start getting, there's no, this is not a self-help manual in that way. Now we can confer with one another, like it really helps me. I tell people sometimes it helps me in the morning to have a routine where I'm waking up while I'm sipping my caffeine, I'm doing my devotional, I pray, I exercise because that does something for my brain and my body and it helps me be more disciplined throughout the day versus saving exercise for later in the day. I don't get that from scripture. That's just hammering it out in life. But I don't say the reason why I'm successful, if I'm successful at all, is because I have this routine nailed in the morning. You adopt a different routine. Whatever works for you, it's not the routine. It's the power behind it. So Paul doesn't want to talk about routine because he wants to talk about what's underneath it. Regardless of the routine that you implement, There's a different power at play, and that begins with faith. To believe that even though I feel like I'm unable, I am unable in the flesh, but I'm not only in the flesh. I I have the Spirit of God, and that takes faith to believe that you can make these goals and accomplish them. I mean, if they're scriptural goals, I'm not talking about wake up in the morning, you know what, I want a Ferrari by the first day of the month next year. No, let's, let's go to Scripture and say, Scripture says I shouldn't, do these things. These things shouldn't be in my heart. I find these things impossible, but that's not true. That's the lie of the accuser saying that I can't do that, even though I tried it before. Yeah, I tried it in my flesh. I want to lean into this with the Holy Spirit of God, and that's freeing. The reason why we could do that is because the Spirit of God indwells us. Look at verses 9 through 11. He has this concept of God dwelling in you four times here. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. That's us and him. And the reason why we're in him is because he's in us. It's kind of a play on, on words. He says, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of, the, because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him, verse 11, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who what? Dwells in you. So you're like, who dwells in me, the spirit or Christ? Christ dwells in you via the spirit. Spirit dwells in you, sort of on commission by the Father and the Son. And it's this constant language of God dwelling in you in verse 9, Christ dwelling in you in verse 10, the Spirit dwells in you, verse 11, and then at the the very end of verse 11, through His Spirit who dwells in you. God's locale is the place of power. You know, Adam and Eve enjoyed that presence in the garden, then they were ousted from that presence. And then it wasn't until really Sinai where God says, I'm going to set up this tabernacle, and it's too powerful for people to walk in there willy-nilly. 
It's too powerful for just anybody to come in there. And the one priest that's allowed in there has to come a specific way or he'll die. You cannot survive this power, this presence. And then Paul's saying, there's no tent anymore, guys. You don't, you don't book a trip to Sinai to go dwell in the presence of God. God dwells in believers. That, that, that is amazing. You're a walking around bomb of power because of God's indwelling presence. I'm not trying to be corny. It's, it's what God has done through Jesus Christ to make you his tabernacle, to make you his holy presence that ousts sin and breaks the power of vices. It's your identity as being indwelled by God that changes you. It's not your, it's not your resolve. It's not the strength of accountability, although that's great. We need those things. But that's not the source of the power. The source of the power is God's Spirit dwelling in us through Christ. And it's the same power, verse 11, who raised Jesus from the dead. I mean, see, that's why it takes faith. Do you believe Jesus was raised from the dead? You do or you don't believe that. If you're a believer, you believe that. So Paul's not trying to argue for the veracity of the resurrection here. He's assuming you got that, right? You weren't there necessarily, right? He's writing to the Romans. He's not saying, oh, remember when you were all there? He's saying, you believe that, but I need you, if you believe that, to also believe that same power is applied to your life, the same power that made Jesus go from dead to walking around and ascending in power. That same power is available to you, not an ounce of it, not a little sliver of it. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that makes your Monday morning different after this sermon than it was last time. It takes faith to believe that. Now here's the problem. Even though we believe that by faith, man, we need something to cling to. We need something that we can look at and see. We need some demonstration, some maybe proof or evidence I'm not sure if that's the right wording there, but what can we cling to, look at, see, that demonstrates to us, man, I, I do have this indwelling power. It's not just a, a text on a page in Scripture. I actually live this out, and that's what the rest of the verses are that we're going to look at today. We're going to go through verse 27, and real quick, look at 12 to 14. We see that the Spirit demonstrates that we're God's children. The, the Spirit shows it to you that you're in. So in other words, here's the effect of this. As the Spirit of God proves to you, hey, you're in, you're a believer, you're a child of God. As he proves that to you, that's supposed to bolster your faith so you stop believing the lie that you can't stop that sin or you can't start that good spiritual habit. That's a lie. And the reason why it's a lie is because you're a child of God. How do you know you're a child of God? Well, the Spirit demonstrates it. And the first way the Spirit demonstrates it is in our obedience. Look at verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh. We don't owe anything to the flesh. Flesh couldn't help us to live according to the flesh. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, sons and daughters of God, children, heirs in the house of God, adopted into God's family. Listen to what he's saying. Listen carefully. He's saying, you know how you know you're a child? You don't live according to the flesh. That's how you know. It's almost counterintuitive. We want the proof so that we can conquer the flesh. And he's saying, you know what the proof is? You're already conquering the flesh, aren't you? You're already experiencing this power. Now, maybe somewhere along the way, you kind of started stalling. You started kind of getting slow. But you've already experienced God's power in your life. 
if you've at least even come to faith. Because we can only please God by faith, the author of Hebrews says, and Paul's saying someone in the flesh can't please God by faith. You're already pleasing God just by having faith in the gospel. The fact that you've believed and you've been baptized, you've already started this journey. There's already a change in you. Now what it looks like he's saying, if you live according to the flesh, then you'll die. But if you live according to the Spirit, then God will reward you with life. That sounds like you earn it. Right? If you do bad things in this life, God is going to be like, you know what? On the day of judgment, he's like, look, up to the last minute, you kind of were messing up. You're dead. And then for others, like, hey, you were doing really well. So, okay, here you go. Because the reason we think that way is because we think, we think in these terms. If you have X, then you will get Y. And when we see something laid out like that, we automatically think, only if I can produce X will I be given Y. And that's not how it works. Let me give you an example. I, I hope it works. So I, I think I needed more time to work it out. Let's try it. If not, we'll edit it out. Um, imagine you tell somebody, if you get a driver's license, then you will drive appropriately. Now, I know we can think of, well, I've seen people on the road all the time. I don't know how they got their license. But Okay, there's exceptions to everything. That's why I said I'm not sure if it works. But in general, okay, in general, if somebody has a license, you would think, you would assume, that's why you get so ticked off that people have licenses and do the things that they do sometimes. Because supposedly, theoretically, if you have a driver's license, that should lead to you driving appropriately. Okay? And there's truth to that. Okay? But that doesn't mean that the license produced your driving appropriately. What's the real truth there? The real truth there is your driving appropriately with the instructor in the car got you the license so that the license can now affirm that you're an appropriate driver. What came first was the driving, not the license. And what Paul is saying here is what came first is not your works. He, I mean, listen to the last few chapters that we've been in. Paul is saying you couldn't drive appropriately. God did something in your life to make you a good driver and now the license shows, hey, good driver. And after the license, yes, you have good driving. So he's not saying, the based on how badly you perform, you'll get death, or based on how bad, or well you perform, you'll get life. He's saying the people that get life are the people that do well. One is the outside identifier of the inward reality. Not that one earns the other one. So what Paul is teaching is that uh, God's grace in your life produces good works. And those good works prove that God has worked grace in your life. Not produced it, but shows it. That's what James is on about. You have faith? Show me. He's not about earning salvation. He's saying, if you're really a Christian, things in your life that you do, show it. Now, we can beat ourselves up all the time about the things that we're not doing well, but Paul's like, think about the things you are doing well, though. Are you as bad as you were before? No. You, God has shown up in your life and started, started chipping things away and started doing things. Okay? And he's saying cling to that when you're in doubt, that God is showing up in your life and is doing things because you were not dominated by the flesh anymore. Have you experienced that, brother? Have you experienced that, sister? Where the big bad beast that used to come knock on your door and you couldn't help but just do what it said? Sometimes you're like, shut up, and you close the door, and you don't do that thing. Do you, do you experience that power? That is evidence of the Spirit of God in your life because you didn't do that before. Now, sometimes things creep through, and we have a long battle. Chapter 7, 
Paul's saying, but you're not dominated by it. You do experience victory, and that is proof. That is proof that the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then he continues in verse 15. He says, the Spirit of God, now this is interesting, the Spirit of God bears witness with us that we are his children. Look at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but what have you received? You've received the spirit of adoption by sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God. We get the inheritance because he's our Father. And everything that's his is ours. And fellow heirs with Christ, everything that's Christ is ours provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The suffering thing comes out of nowhere. We'll get to that in a second. But real quickly, Abba, Father. Abba is a transliteration of the Aramaic word that Jesus would use to address Father, an intimate term. And Paul is saying the same access that Jesus had to the Father, we've been given that access to the Father. And he is indeed our Father. And the way we know that this is... We might be like, I want something a little more concrete. He says, the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit. That's very internal. There's a very real sense in which somebody asks you, how do you know you're a Christian? There's a lot of ways we can answer that, but it's not illegitimate to answer, I just know. You, You know, I just know. And if you've never felt that kind of assurance, maybe the Spirit isn't bearing witness with you, and you need to go back to square one. Do you really grasp the gospel? Now, I'm not saying every single day, every minute of every day, we walk in this full assurance. We're never confused. There's never any doubt. And I, don't, I don't think that's reality. But at the end of the day, the Spirit of God, the promise here is that the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit, in verse 16, that we are children of God. It's not an audible voice. He's not going to write it out on the wall so when you wake up, it's some weird script on your wall, and then you have some ancient archaeologist translate it, and it's God telling you, hey, you're mine. We have Scripture as an external witness. We also have our obedience as an external witness, what he just talked about. You can see good works. You can see God showing up in your life, but there's also an internal witness, the Spirit bearing witness with your spirit. Hey, you're mine. You're empowered, and you don't have to do that. Walk with me. Walk with me here. That's God doing that. That's not the voice of your pastor in your ear. That's the Holy Spirit. That is amazing. And then he ends with the suffering piece. Why? In verse 17, he says, provided we suffer with him. That doesn't mean suffering earns salvation. Again, same example with the license and the driving. He's saying that somebody who is in Christ, yeah, we're going to suffer. And so he points us to this future reality. Right now, it's hard grinding this out, especially when you're sick or you've got a disease or there's some natural disaster. There's all kinds of ways that we suffer, our struggle with sin even. But it's temporary and it's pushing forward to this glorious time where we won't have this fight anymore. Look at verse 16, verse 18, I'm sorry. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, God, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait 
eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Two more verses. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I know this is a big chunk of Scripture. I'm not going to unpack everything here. I just want to kind of let you see the flow of what Paul is saying here. He's saying, for further proof that we have this Holy Spirit, for further confirmation that we've got this Holy Spirit, we have also an external proof of suffering. And you're like, man, suffering makes me feel like I don't have the Spirit. Suffering makes me feel like God is displeased with me. Suffering makes me feel like I'm actually separated from God. And he's like, no, 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 the opposite. Right now, your struggle is marked by suffering, and that is proof that you're in this battle and that you're in this fight, and you are, by the power of the Holy Spirit, grinding it out, not on your own, but by his power. You're grinding it out. There would be no grinding if it was never hard. There would be no battle if there was never any struggle. And so the suffering actually shows you are in this. You, you are in this. So some of you who are gamers, uh, you know, you're taking shots and you're in some battle or something like that and your screen is lighting up red and you hear the sound that you're taking hits, you're taking shots. When you're dead, the camera kind of zooms out, right, in a lot of those first shooter games. I don't know how many of you all I just lost. There's like two of you listening right now. Two of you started listening right now. You know, there's the, 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 the controller vibrates, there's sounds, there's some, some red lights on the side, like, hey, you're getting shot. That means you're alive, dude, right? You're not up like the ghost camera floating around watching your other friends play, and you're like, ugh, when do I get reinserted? And so Paul's saying the fact that you're taking shots, the fact that you're, the fact that you're taking hits, the fact that the controller's vibrating right now, that things are tough in your life, that's proof you're in. And it's going to be like that till the end. But when that end comes, we're going to be released from this groaning. Now, this whole last paragraph that I just read you is, you can break it up into three kinds of groaning, right? Like, oh, the struggle. Think of somebody struggling, oh, this fight. And he says, first of all, all of creation groans like that. Because ever since the garden, creation was thrown under a curse. Now, he doesn't say the solution is clean the oceans. I'm not saying we shouldn't clean the oceans. But there's a lot of Christian writers and preachers out there they're like what this passage is preaching is we got to take care of the earth let's you know green new deal or something i don't know that's a different argument for a different he's not talking about he what he's saying is this this earth is always going to be under corruption and it's longing to be freed from it and it'll be freed from it when we're freed from it the things that curse this earth are the same things that curse our bodies that give us sicknesses and diseases and viruses and there will be a time where those things are removed but right now those are ways for us to struggle and we lean into it with the power of the Spirit of God. Not only does creation groan for renewal, but we groan, verses 23 to 25, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You ever sit to pray and sometimes you just really can't articulate words. you just like, oh, God. He's like, yeah, I know. That means you get it. You get the weight of this. You get the difficulty of this. And so together with creation, we're longing for this end. 
And we're leaning into it with this groaning because we're not giving up. We don't just sit back. We're, we're in this fight. We're in this battle. But it's proof of the Spirit. Look at verse 23. We have this first fruits of the Spirit. Those of us who are not very agricultural, it's, hard, it's easy for us to get lost in this. It's like a deposit, a down payment. If you're a farmer and you got this crop, that first yield, that first fruit that you bring in from the field, it's proof that there's crop this year, guys. Now, there's going to be a lot more to haul in, but this is the first proof of it, maybe even the best of it, to show that we've got crop in this field this year. It didn't die, right? And so God is saying, you don't have everything that God is going to give you yet. You're still living a corrupted earth. You still de are dealing with corrupted physical bodies, but you have God's down payment that the rest is coming. And that down payment is the Spirit of God alive and at work in you. So all of creation groans for this renewal to happen. We, together with creation, groan for this renewal to happen. And then, surprisingly, the Spirit of God himself groans in verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. Have you ever thought of God as having feelings? God is not a robot. God steps into this with us, and he's like, oh, too. That's amazing. The difference is creation can't do anything about it, and we can't do anything about it, but the Spirit's groanings work, and they have power. This has nothing to do about speaking in tongues or some other language. It says specifically, this is not a language. It's too deep for words, and it's not you doing the groaning in this verse. It's the Spirit doing the groaning. So this, this isn't about speaking in tongues or a spiritual gift. This is about the Spirit praying for you, interceding for you groaning with you, but his groaning works. It's effective. Here's why it's effective. You remember when Jesus taught many times, and we'll wrap up with this, when Jesus taught many times, anything you ask in my name, you'll get it. Have you ever wondered, you know, how, how is that true? Have you ever thought, like, man, that just sounds like a straight-up lie. I ask for things sometimes and don't get it. Paul experienced the same thing, right? Um, when he asked God to remove this thorn from his flesh, this thing that he was struggling with, this physical affliction he had. He asked three different times. And Jesus said, no, actually, that's not my will. And so th the problem here is not that we don't know how to pray. Do I start by saying, Father? Do I end with in Jesus' name? How do I? It's not how to pray. Jesus taught us how to pray. That's where we got the Lord's Prayer. It's what to pray. When we say, Lord, give us today our daily bread, I mean, I don't know about you, when I pray that prayer, that's where I get stuck sometimes. What is that daily bread? Because I know what I want, but I don't know what I need. And I don't know if that thing that I want to pray for is actually what God wants in my life. Should I ask for that? I mean, Paul literally asked for a disease to be taken away, and Jesus is like, no, disease stays. I want you humble. At least he gave him a reason. Many of us don't even get a reason. We just get a no or a wait. And we're not sure if wait means no or if the no means wait. Because it's not an audible voice, we're just hanging in there praying, and we don't know if we're praying exactly according to God's will. What Jesus meant by praying in my name is if you ask God what is appropriate to ask in my name, means it's according to God's will, you will receive it. The problem is we don't always know what that is, and that's why sometimes you can't just be a prayer nerd with your pocket protector, pull out your little micron pens and jot down the next prayer request for this month, and God always does it. Sometimes you're like, I don't even know what to write down. Oh! And the Spirit of God says, I got you. Oh! 
Oh, God, give him what's right. Give him what's right. And Father's like, yes, he couldn't do it. But the Spirit of God stepped in and did it on your behalf. You didn't know what to ask. The Spirit asked it for you. I mean, if you're a parent, you got a kid, and the kid doesn't know exactly the right thing to ask, you're like, forget it then. You don't get the good thing. Sometimes you got to come along and just give them the good thing. And God does that through prayer, but when we're unable to pray it, the Spirit prays it. That, I mean, the Spirit of God is powerful in your life to step in where you're unable to step in and ask for things where you don't even have the wisdom to ask for that thing. I'm not going to be wise enough to say, you know what, Lord, let this disease linger a little longer. I need to learn humility. All I can think of is, get this disease off of me. That's all I can think about. I need the Spirit to come alongside and step in and pray appropriately where maybe unknowingly I'm not praying appropriately. So the Spirit shows up in your life with a lot of proof, right? He bears witness with your spirit internally that you're a child of God. He prays and steps in and prays in ways where you look back and you're like, I didn't even pray for that. I didn't even have the wisdom to pray for that, and I got that. Thank you, God. And only in reflection can you see that the Spirit of God stepped in and, and worked something out even though that's not exactly what you were praying for because you didn't have the wisdom to pray for it. Or you were stuck in a, a bout of pain and you didn't even know how to approach prayer. That's okay. God doesn't demand that you always know the right thing to pray. He demands that you pray, and if you've got to groan it out, groan it out. The Spirit of God will step in, and he'll get done what God wants to get done in your life. Stay in the fight. Stay the course. Don't buy into the lie that you are not a child of God because you struggle the struggle means you're still getting hit because you're alive. You're in this thing right now. And you can experience victory because of the Spirit of God indwelling you. Let's pray. Father, we pray for encouragement and we pray for boldness. Underneath all of that, we pray for faith. That we would believe that you've done a work in us. You've done what it takes to produce work in us. Lord, many of us, are, our minds are swirling right now with things that we do that we should not be doing, things that maybe we do in secret, maybe not so much in secret, um, things that are very damaging and dark, maybe things that seem light on the surface, but we know they don't please you. We pray that we wouldn't excuse the light things because it's sort of culturally accepted. All of the things that displease you that we do, Father, we need power to stop. And Lord, all the things that we should be doing and we just haven't grown into it yet, God, we pray for power to start. And we don't want to believe the lie that we can't. We want to lean into the truth that because of your indwelling, powerful uh, Holy Spirit, that we can leave here walking in victory, not condemned, but walking in sanctification that continues, that progresses, and that we can quicken our step in our pursuit of you. Help us to help each other in this in a way that um, stirs one another up toward love and good works as we continue to meet together and encourage one another and worship with one another. And even now as we close in the song, Father, would you empower us and give us grace for this fight? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.